Welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Oh, we're just we're doing just it, doing aren't we? Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language with no warm-up at all. Katie just hit the record button, so here we go. Otherwise, Arlene, we end up like five minutes into catching up, and then I'm like, well, shit, we should have saved all this for the update. So this way it'll be... Yeah, we could have recorded this. Yep, this way it'll be fresher. Katie, what's the lambing report? We are knock on wood, done with lambing. We have one elderly ewe who is hopefully not bred. Um, but everybody else has done the thing. We have, I think Jim said, 67 lambs, or possibly 76. It was early. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of those, those two numbers in some yeah, combination. A lot. Um, out of approximately 35 ewes, but a number of them are yearlings so we only expect singles otherwise we expect twins um we had one set of quads and a couple sets of triplets we had a new calf yesterday and it's supposed to warm up next week so that's very exciting nice other than that that's basically it no kid news uh doing anything adorable lately one of my my boy child inquired if we could borrow my friend Susie's husband to make us some more babies. So that was a little bit awkward. <laughs> he wanted some babies like the friends that he already has. So he figured the correct approach there was to borrow their father. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, the boy child's fifth birthday is next week. So we are deep in the when is my birthday? When is my birthday? Is my birthday today? When is my birthday? Right. Situation. Yeah. Um, and is he also at the stage where he has a lot of plans for what the birthday will be like? Only about which tractors he's getting. I don't. Oh, I see. You know, I mean, right. he's excited that not, his friends are so coming over. Not so much the party planning. Yeah. No, he doesn't sure, care. Sure, yeah. Um, honestly, I'm not really planning anything. I mean... There will be food and cake, and then I'm going to throw them all out the back door and lock it behind them. It's supposed to be warm and yeah. sunny, and uh, it's a lot of five-year-olds. And part of the issue with having children close in age, you go to a school where a lot of kids are close in age, you know, between siblings, is that when you invite one kid, you usually have to invite two or three kids, which is totally fine. But, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of a a large feral pack of children rather than the whole like you know yeah. one child per year of age and I'm like you know and then a boy child invited two of his preschool teachers um and their respective children and you know we're a we're a more the merrier kind of group so that's fine sure. you know I'm, eh. yeah everybody will have fun and are you in a yeah, are you in a community where the adults stick around, or is it more of a drop-off-and-go type of I'm hoping that at least some of them will stay. Um, right. I generally, you know, we're just getting to know a lot of the kids' friends and their families well enough to feel comfortable with just dropping them off. Um, sure, yeah, and I mean, that's there's kind of like a... 
it's one of those un, unknowns, right? Like, are we, am I supposed to drop my kid off? Am I supposed to stay? I don't know. Like if the invitation doesn't say, yeah. and I don't know the parents at that, yeah, around that age, it's kind of always awkward to try and figure that out. I generally offer to stay if they need assistance with anything. Mm. And then I don't feel bad if I, you know, if they're like, oh, no, no, we have it totally under control. I'm like, cool. You said it, not me. Sure. You know, um, yeah, that's right. The nice part too about being involved in a community daycare and being on the board and everything is that I have folks who know a lot of the families in town really well, and so I can kind of tap them for information about, you know, is this family reasonably okay to just drop my kids off and not be concerned about it? You know, which is nice to have right, sort of yeah. a, should I stick around yeah, an inroad on family dynamics sure how are things at your place arlene things are pretty good not too much to report on farm stuff i mean we're in that stage of the year where you know you're just kind of doing the everyday chores it's not warm enough to really uh, start doing much other than the the usual a little bit of cleaning around i suppose you know maintenance type things and not a ton of new calves. We had, I think, two or three last week, but that's typical. Um, on the social side of things, our Holstein Club had our barn meeting this weekend. So that is basically just like a somebody offers up their barn every spring. We have a gathering. Um, you know, there's snacks. They judge a class of cows. Basically just an excuse to get together. So we did that on Saturday. And it was beautiful and warm and there was so much mud like it was my youngest we had to I had I stood him in the back of the van and pulled his boots off of his feet and I had seen him playing in a pile of sand with some other kids and that was great Um, but the amount of sand that came out of the boots um, in the back of the van was very impressive like they I couldn't really get them off because so much sand had gotten in that his foot was like actually wedged into the boot (laughs) so we eventually eventually reefed them off and uh, shook them out and tried to get as much off of his pants as possible before he was allowed to go and actually sit in the seat but uh, yeah, it was a, a little bit of a messy place to uh, try and get into, but it was nice to be with lots of other people from the community, so that was fun. And yeah, otherwise I don't feel like there's a whole heck of a lot going on. My um, my husband's going away this week for a couple of nights to uh, Cow, uh, what's it called? It's the Canadian Dairy Expo, so it's like a trade show, there's a heifer sale, that kind of stuff, so he's going with a couple of friends, so... I'll be milking here with, uh, I think my daughter's boyfriend is maybe doing a couple of the morning milkings with me, so that he'll be uh, hanging out with me in the mornings. And yeah, that's the week, I think. That sounds not too bad. uh, Yeah, I actually have a somewhat, I shouldn't say it because I'm sure it'll fill up before I even know what's happening, somewhat empty calendar this week. We, like Katie and I, went through a little while there where we were maybe a little overzealous and we booked a lot of interviews. So some weeks we had three or four interviews booked. So now the fact that we have a week with no interviews booked, I'm like, what am I actually going to do with all my time? Maybe I could, you know, clean my house or something. Oh, don't do that. You can find something better than that. No, I... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Banish the thought. I won't do that. Yeah. You don't want to start I I do need to do some organizing. That's not quite the same as cleaning. Yeah. 
Yeah, that doesn't. Sound I know like the uh, the eight year olds. Every pair of pants I put on, I think, oh, I have to put those in, in the hand me down pile because they're getting too short. So I need to go to the closet, which I know has tons of hand me downs from other people in it. I'm sure there are tons of pants in there that will fit him, but I just have to haul it all out and figure out what is going to go into the drawer. So maybe that's something I can do this week. The spring organize, not the spring clean. Yeah, yeah. And are the flies back in your house? I almost forgot. Product recommendation for the week. This I <laughs> it's not generally something I do. They're not sponsoring this show. We got a sticky trap with the blue light on it from a company called Zevo. Z is in zebra. Um E V O. Uh purchased it in the pest control aisle at Walmart, but I'm sure they are available plenty of other places. It's just a a sticky part like a fly tape, but it's about the size and shape of like a, an air freshener plug-in. And I plugged it in okay, yeah. in the kitchen where we've had this monstrous outbreak of something that looks like mosquitoes, but doesn't seem inclined to bite people. I don't know what they are, but okay, there's a delightful. fuck ton of them. <laughs> plugged this thing in, yeah. caught like 50 of them the first night. Wow. And then it got covered that in flies satisfying. and those uh, Asian ladybugs. Um, mm-hmm. So I bought another one and I bought some refills. And now I have one in the bathroom, which seems to be a, a hot spot for bugs to collect. And uh, one in the kitchen. And I'm very excited. Um, it's also nice because the blue light attracts them, but it's a little more covered up than like having a fly tape hanging over your sink which is usually where we right, end up by yeah. the middle of then summer. You end up getting... Yeah. Yeah, and then you get, st- you get stuck yeah, in it Yeah, or well the cat gets like... stuck in it, or your plants get stuck to it, and it's... Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, we're definitely in the... Like, all the windows are starting to get filled with those, you know, old farmhouse cluster flies. So oh, the cluster I flies. Delightful. Look into... Yes. Yeah. And the, uh, <laughs> the Asian ladybugs, you know, they fill up the window... The, the window frame between the screen and the window and then the first time in the spring that you open the window it just like blasts dead bugs into the room which is always a delight um, it's like it's like potpourri but not but it, gross much stinkier bad smelling yeah <laughs> yeah but gross it's also yeah. uh spider season this time every year they all come up out of the basement all sorts of uh Oh. Trapdoor spiders and because it's spiders. too wet down there. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so like, we're making our way upstairs. <laughs> well, plus they heard there's bugs upstairs. Um, yeah, so that's right. Yeah, trap our them home is flooding. We're going upstairs. Yeah, toss them back into the basement, and I don't kill them because for as much effort as I mm-hmm. spend getting rid of, you know, flies and such, it seems silly to kill the natural predators. So, you know, but at the same time, I don't really want them parading around the bathroom while I'm trying to shower. So. Yeah, you know, spin your web somewhere else. Yeah, better. yeah. Um, especially because they tend to to try to make their webs in the bathtub drain because they are um, hunting spiders who like to, you know, oh. holes. They can't swim now, <laughs> which things. is a downside. Um, <laughs> yeah, not a good, not a good no. idea then. No. Other than that, yeah, nothing. Whole lot of nothing. Yeah. Well, which is now excellent. that we've done the bug report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how about we go ahead and introduce our guest All for right. this week? Sounds good. 
So today we are excited to be talking to Navaratnam Parthiban, who's a veterinarian joining us from the UK. And we start each of our interviews with the same question. And this is a way for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. And we ask, what are you growing? So this can cover crops or livestock, families, businesses, all kinds of other stuff. So what are you growing? Um, so thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm probably growing, growing my career, growing my life and um, growing, uh, learning about people around me and, and, and animals around me at the moment. So yeah, growing. That's a lot of different, yeah, a lot of different ways of growing, right? And are you also a parent? We, I know you, this is a parenting podcast, so we always like to check in on that first too. I am. I've got three children. Um, I've got a boy of nine and I've got two girls, seven and three. So yeah, growing things at home too. That's it. <laughs> Can you tell us about your dog? I know we we mentioned before we started the interview that you have a dog. But I do, yes. Inquiring minds need to know. <laughs> I've got a, a little black, well, she's an old black Labrador. So I, I got her when she was eight weeks old and um, she's a working breed. So she she her dad's from Scotland and her mum's from Ireland. Um, but I've never really worked her since three years old. Um, so now she's 13 going on 14 so she's an old girl but yeah she's been with me and she's come to work with me every day and um yeah she's yeah one of my longest term friends do you have any other pets as well or just her well i've got a, a tortoise called colombo who's about three um i've got i've got some chickens um between 10 and 15 depending on when the fox is here and uh, <laughs> a bunch of koi fish as well so uh, yeah, that keeps me interest, keeps me entertained at home when I'm not at work, really. Um, but yeah, feeding all those mouths. <laughs> I'm sorry, having a tortoise is kind of like my life goal at this point. I don't, I know that they live a very long time, and I feel like they probably would not like the climate in Iowa. So I don't think it's ever going to happen. But well, well my tortoise is living indoors, and actually, it was meant to be a, 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 a birthday present for my wife because she kept telling me she'd always wanted a tortoise and I last minute I couldn't think of a present for her so I thought do you know what I'm going to really surprise her and I bought a tortoise and a table and everything and um, just like my children when I buy them pets I'm the one end up looking after it so uh, and then I've also started to tell my child that look when when I pass away that's what he's going to inherit to him so uh, I'm trying to train him but yeah it's a, bit of a difficult moment at the moment <laughs> trying to do that how, how big is Colombo? Oh, just the size of your hand at the moment, and it'll probably oh, okay. grow to twice the size of your hand. But yeah, at the moment, it's he or she, I'm not really sure at the moment, is, is still indoors. So uh, yeah, wait to see what happens. I was envisioning one of the, the giant, you know. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'll be in the doghouse if I bought something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was picturing you having that just stomping around your living room with your kids and the dog and Oh, I see. I've seen weird things like that before. So yeah, I wouldn't be. Yeah, I suppose some... maybe they'd make a good coffee table. You could sort of balance something across their back, and you know, you'd have to chase your drinks down, which might be a problem. But, I don't but if they move forward, bad. you'd have to just move, move out the way because it wouldn't move for you. You know what I mean? So yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I think I'd, I'd I'd break a lot of things in the house. Did you grow up involved in agriculture, or how did you become a veterinarian? Um, so no, I, I I've always lived in. I was born and bred in Scotland. That's where I'm originally from, and I've always lived in the cities and towns. 
um, and my parents weren't involved in agriculture, but where they're from, originally they're they're from the agricultural background. Um, so they always talked about it in stories and things like that, but I never really had much contact. Um, and actually, I did love animals. I, I loved reading about them and doing things, with, you know, learning about them. And I enjoyed uh, science. So initially I sort of did, I, my uncle was a vet, but he was living in London, which was about a nine hour drive from where I was. Um, so I, I saw him briefly and he used to mention things and he sort of put it in my head, you know, actually marrying science and animals together, veterinary could be an option. So uh, I did zoology first. And then when I was doing zoology, I just thought, well, actually, could I do more with with animals and, and things like that? So, yeah, my my dream then became, you know, to become a vet. And I had to study at Edinburgh, where, where I was from. So, um, yeah. And then when I was in uh, before I went to vet school, I had to just go and see some um a bit of farm experience and a bit of small animal experience so I worked on a beef farm just did a bit of laboring job and I really enjoyed it and then when I went to vet school when you're doing you, you see all these different animals you're seeing dogs you're seeing cats you're seeing zoo animals but there was a buzz that I got when I was working on the farms um so what I did is I spent all my summers working on dairies and lambing and all these things and um, I got a buzz that I didn't get anywhere else I just thought that's 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 where I'm going to go so how many sets of James Harriet novels did you go through? I'll be honest with you, none. I've never read a James Harriet. <laughs> this wow. is a weird thing. Yeah, it's 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 weird because I didn't really have any role models. I, I just literally, I my uncle was a role model, but he wasn't a role model as in he, he was passionate about his job and he was a vet and I thought I could be like him. He was just like, he gave me the idea that veterinary exists for, you know, as, as a career. And actually, I went blind thinking, do you know what? I want to go and see what it's like. But I didn't know any vets and didn't have anyone that I sort of looked up to at the time. So, um, yeah. Uh, but when I was in vet school, I suddenly, you know, being in that environment, I suddenly saw, you know, certain figures who sort of took me under their wing or who did things that just made me go, wow. And then, you know, and then I started latching on to little on, on certain people like that. And it was actually a vet in, um, sorry, it was a vet in Southwest Scotland. Um, and I spent a lot of time in Southwest Scotland. That's a huge dairy area. And I was working 100% dairy practice. And he just, every evening, he took me and we went over books and we went over examples and we went over all sorts of stuff. And he educated me. And I'd say he he was my role model for, for becoming, wanting to be a vet and wanting to be a dairy vet, which I eventually sort of did for a while. Um, so, yeah, I owe a lot to him. He was probably more important to me than uh, a lot of people. I think that's fascinating because I think one of the things we're really learning with the podcast is how important it is for people to see people doing the things they want to do, you know, and to having that hands-on connection with things because it's really hard to be something if you don't know anybody who does it or can't, you know, to, to get your foot in the door. And especially if you're not growing up in an egg family, you know, that it's, um, a lot more difficult if you don't have that in with things. Yeah, and it's I mean, true. we know that there's so few people in agriculture anymore, right? I mean, in, in North America, it's about 2%. I assume it's probably about the same in the UK. And one, UK. One, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, Very much. I mean, the, it, that doesn't mean that there's there's a, just a lack of farmers that, you know, like you experienced, that means that there's there's a lack of connection with people who then end up working in the industry too, right? Whether that's veterinarians or, I mean, I know that, you know, our feed companies and our equipment sales companies are always looking for farm kids, right? But there's, there's to, to hire or train or, you know, like there's so many jobs out there for people who, who 
even at just enter ag programs because the service industry around our industry is huge but there's there's less and less people even enrolling in those programs that support farmers or you know food production those types of things so one yep. of the reasons we wanted to talk to you specifically was that you're the co-founder of the british veterinary ethnicity and diversity diversity society um, so what made you and your co-founder decide to start this group and what's your what's your mission so we, we I, it, it, I was in practice i was in clinical practice and um i've sort of been qualified about seven years and and when you're a, when you're part of a sort of marginalized group um, you do go through a lot of experiences negative experiences but what you do is when you're young um so when I was really young, I was in, you know, I wanted to become a vet. So I wanted to get into vet school. When I was in vet school. I just wanted to pass my degree. And then when you come out of vet school, you just want to be the best vet you can be. You just want to be confident in what you're doing. So whenever you get these neg negative experiences, you 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 sort of put it inside somewhere in your in your body because you just want to perform and you want to and you don't want to be seen as trouble. You don't want to spend any extra energy trying to sort that out when you're actually just trying to trying to learn and and, and survive really um and 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 that can go for any sort of and that includes discriminations whether it's sexism homophobia racism you know you you do you do you know you, you won't find many people moan or complain at university or in, in the early years of their career um, because again you also don't want to get a tag where you won't get employed by anybody else so I've I've been you know for years and years and years I've been I'm doing that and again in veterinary just like in farming especially as a person of colour you know we're in a minority so you know only three percent of vets in the UK are minority ethnic um, and and one percent of ag minority ethnic so again even if I did have problems where do I go and who do I talk to so I just thought you know I'll do it I'll do it and once I've been about seven years qualified, I think it was a farmer who basically told me that he didn't want me on his farm based on the colour of my skin. And when when that happened to me, I just thought, well, you know, I'm a well qualified vet. That shouldn't be happening to me. I went to my bosses and they wouldn't support me. They support the farmer over me. And I went to my um, I went to my the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, our regulator. They wouldn't support me. I went to my association. They wouldn't support me. I went to our mental health charity. They wouldn't support me. Nobody would support me. And there was nobody there for me. And so what I did is I carried on working. And then I decided I, I left clinical work and I went to industry. I went to pharmaceuticals. And when I was in pharmaceuticals, what I suddenly saw was there were processes in place. There was, you know, if you had an issue, there was somewhere to report and there was and a process would happen where you would find out within a certain time period you'd know what had happened to that report and and also i just such saw much more diversity among you know the work floor when i was going out into different practices and seeing different people which i didn't get when i was just working in a small practice in in, a, in, in rural somerset so i just thought well okay do you know what this is not right for our profession and if we want more diversity and more people in our profession we need to be better we need to support all people not just certain people so I, I I thought right I'm going to try and fight this so I tried to do it on my own I tried to write letters to all these different organizations and say look you've got to do better and none of them would take responsibility to do it better and actually it was really difficult on my own to try and make a change and luckily there was another colleague of mine who I actually qualified with but I hadn't spoken to her for years and um, I'd seen something on social media and she'd written something about sexism that she'd been facing but she was also a person of color as well so I wrote to her and said, look, you know, the things you're facing, I'm facing too. You know, you're facing obviously other things as well. But, you know, maybe we should work together. And she said and she was 
living about 450 miles away from me. But I said, look, let's get to do something together. So literally that night we started a Facebook group, we started a Twitter account, and we came up with a name, British Veterinary Ethnicity Diversity Society, which is BVEDS for short. So we thought it's nice and quick and easy to say. And we thought, when you come with an association, you've got a bigger voice. Um, and that's what we did. And actually, the, when we came back with an association with more people behind us, people started to open doors and listen to us. Um, and, and, and it grew. And really, the first cause was to create awareness that there's a problem. There's a lack of diversity. There's no processes. What are we going to do about it? And then it grew. You know, first about trying to support people of colour and ethnicity, but also as part of the bigger diversity picture, but also then celebrate it also educate about it and, and all those other different streams when we talk about diversity. Um, and then, you know, and it, and it was all about veterinary to begin with. Um, and then I was at a meeting one day and the, the CEO of the Royal College, you know, we, we were talking and I said to her, look, we can't do anything about farmers and agriculture, but we can change vets because vets is a profession. And she said to me, why not? Why, why do farmers get away with it? Or why do people in agriculture get away with it? So I went home and I thought for a while and I thought, she's right, you know, why don't we do something about it? And that's when then I took on agriculture as well. I thought, you know what, veterinary and agriculture are very, very similar in a lot of ways. But actually, if we can make a change or we can do something that works in one sector, we can apply it to the other sector. And I just thought this is an opportunity to, to bring everyone together. So I wrote to the National Farmers Union and I visited them and I went to a lot of other different organisations and, and it's, it's grown since then. And, and we are here today. That's amazing that, uh, I mean, not that it was a small, you know, it was kind of a small start, but that accumulation, right, of, you know, things yeah. over time where it's like, you know, there, there's a limit, right, to what you can, what you can take and yeah. that, that, that that then builds into something bigger and creating a system because those, as much as sometimes we complain about the system, those systems are what we need you know, in the background, hopefully, you know, when everything's smooth sailing, then, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's fine. But yeah, to have those checks and balances and to have a network behind you to know that, yeah, if, the, if there's a problem that there's, there's someone out there who's got your back or because so much of both veterinary medicine and farming probably feels very solitary and individual at, at, at you know, on a day-to-day sure. -day basis, but it, but it is, and also, and when we talk about this sort of things, it's, you know, we talk about the, one of the biggest crises in, in agriculture, farming, veterinary, is mental health and, and suicide, all those things. And it's all linked, you know, mm -hmm. you know, when we talk about marginalisation of people, when we talk about discrimination or isolation, you know, and mental health issues, it's all linked together. And actually, if we start to tackle it and start to break that down and bring more inclusivity, then actually we can tackle a lot of problems in one go. Mm -hmm. I think... Two, it's your experience is really a testament to the fact that if you put a big, important sounding name on something, people will take you more seriously because theme sounds like some guy that maybe some farmer was rude to him. And now maybe he's just like, ah, somebody was mean to me. But the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society sounds like a whole shitload of people who probably have good lawyers and need to be taken seriously. <laughs> and I mean, Yes, it's total bullshit. They should take you seriously because you're a human and especially because you're an educated professional human who is there in a professional capacity and deserves to be treated as such. But sometimes, you know, slapping a fancy name and a logo on something makes a huge difference in what people's responses. Sorry, the puppies over here making weird noises. Um, 
So we're a North American-based podcast. And Arlene, I think in the U.S., it's 1% are ag-related jobs. Um, but knowing that you've worked both in the U.K. and in the U.S., what similarities are there um, in the veterinary community between the two places and what differences have you found? So, yeah, I've, 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 we've done a lot of collaboration with, with U.S. Um, organizations. And in, in fact, I did a talk with the American Association of Bovine Practitioners uh, about these things. Um, so the, the similarities are, if you look at the number of minorities in veterinary, both percentages are very similar. You know, there's not much difference in if you look at population to the number of people studying. Um, and I think that, again, it's quite a privileged sort of profession as well. So. It's again, you need to be social, you know, your social class has to be quite high. You need to be fairly wealthy to afford to do the degree. You need to have the connections. We, you know, again, in the UK and in the US, it's very rare that people just get in there without knowing anything about it. A lot of people might know a vet or have been to a vet. Again, access to animals. A lot of people in the city areas, both in the UK and the US, won't have access to animals. And again, where do you get the inspiration and where do you get that experience to get into vet school? Um, and finally, you know, I think academically, um, vet schools, you know, unfairly put a high um, level required to get into vet school. Um, but I think, you know, again, we're starting to realise that the best vets aren't the most academic vets. Um, and actually, you know, we can, uh, there are a lot of people who academically might be brilliant, but practically are fantastic. Uh, and we need to bring them into the sector as well. Um, so, so those are similarities. I think both US and the UK have the same similar situations like that. I think where the US differs is, first of all, the number of support um, organisations or groups there are, which like, you know, for example, the, the, the Black Veterinary Association, the Hispanic Veterinary Association, the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association. Um, if you look at all the vet schools, they've got a lot of um a lot of groups identity groups in there as well that's you know at which then form together to form the big conferences numbers again you know you could have even if you have one conference and you only get 10 percent of the minority vets if it was a minority vets conference you're going to have it's going to be bigger than a big conference in the uk for example because you've got a numbers thing the uk you know we're, we're only 71 million i think 300 million is the us so we're a much smaller country uh, when it comes to numbers as well. Um, uh, so I think that, and I think also maybe, for example, one thing in the US is 80% of all black veterinarians come from one university, you know? So there's a lot of, no one uses segregation, but again, there's a lot of people going to the same place. And I think it's because they recognize it, they know it, and they'll feel safe there. And so, again, creating that um, widening participation in the other universities is still early days. Whereas in the UK, it's not like that. It's fairly sp well spread out when we talk about minority vets um, qualifying. Um, so so those, those would be my top line differences, really. Well, I'm going to move our questions around because that statistic about 80% of Black vets coming from the same university really blew my mind. I grew up outside of Ames, Iowa, which has Iowa State University, which is one of, I think, the the bigger and well-known vet programs in the country. And to be honest, I didn't know that Tuskegee even had a vet program. Um, and so I think there's a lot of great things to be said um, 
for anyone who's not familiar, Tuskegee is a historically black college. And I think there are a lot of wonderful reasons for black students to go there. But as a student who went to a lot of, you know, veterinary open houses at the at the university as a kid and a lot of those um, career day sort of things, you know, if I had been a person of color, I would not have seen anyone who looked like me. And so it's it's interesting to me to think about what everyone gathering at one place does to what kids see anywhere else, you know, and not that people should have to sacrifice their own lives for um, being visible for other people, but it does, I mean, it must have an impact that such a large percentage are going to the same school. And it's, I don't know, I just thought it was really interesting um, because 80% is a very large percentage of people going to one university. Anyway, blew my mind, but that's as far as I got with asking my question, I guess. Yeah, no, and I think it's about how do you prepare people for the, the workplace as well? Because again, you're going to be in a safe environment at university, but then when you go into the clinics again, then you're going to be back into being one of the only people in that clinic um so yeah i suppose that that's going to be you know that that's interesting to see how they do prepare vets to go out into the into the workplace and when they go back home wherever they come from the us it's going to be very different from at that university um so yeah there, there's going to be challenges there's going to be pros and cons with all those sort of things maybe you already covered this but what are the statistics in terms of um, ag vets of color, because I'm just assuming based on the things you talked about in terms of, you know, where people are coming from and the experience they already have, are the majority of vets of color going into small animal practice? Yeah, so um, I would say there are probably five vets of color in farm animal practice in the whole country, and I'm one oh, wow. of them. You're talking right. to twenty percent of the farm vets of color in this country. There's probably three or four equine vets, and the rest will be small animals. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, it's because again, a lot of people of color come from cities and towns, and so when they've qualified, that's what they know. That's where they go. That's where they've had the positive experiences, and and they go back. Um, where uh, you know, again, it's coming out to the countryside you need a lot of you need that support network you need that positive experiences you know again in the countryside if you do get racism or sexism or homophobia then it is going to put you off thinking about a career in in the countryside so you're going to feel like going back into the city where there's going to be more more diversity um but there is there are you know we are trying to change things in the uk and there are more programs in the uk um and it, when i was in the us the, earlier this year I, I i saw lots of different things going on to try and encourage more people of color to come out into the countryside and work in the countryside whether it's farming or agriculture around that or veterinary um but i think you know we need more programs and we need more positive reinforcement um of, of people visiting the countryside and, and enjoying it sure yeah and i mean as we get more you know people get more specialized and you know we talk all the time about farms getting 
bigger and you know our our animals are even getting more concentrated right like you're talking about working in an area that's primarily dairy you know that happens regionally right where there's yeah. a lot of dairy farms in certain spots or you know like in where, where i live i think i only know of a couple people who raised pigs so like if you've never had exposure to that specific type of animal or you know vets are going to learn about lots of different things but then if you never practice on them then you that's know that those those skills then get lost over time, right? Or, you know, same as same as yeah. when you're going into veterinary medicine, if you've never even touched a cow, then the likelihood of being comfortable operating on one or handling well, one it. is going to be less, it. right? And, and, and also, is... like, our, our insurance won't cover us anyway. So if I tried to operate on a dog or a cat or a horse now and something went wrong, my insurance would be like, look, you haven't touched one for 13 years. Well, you've got no yeah, chance. That's right. so. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> We know that you haven't practiced in a while. Well, and I, um, oh, sorry, Arlene, I wonder, too, what impact that has on what students are even learning at vet school, because I know around here there are so few sheep farmers that our vets say well we didn't really learn anything about sheep in school and now we don't see them in practice you know except for like club lambs um you know and so they're they're googling which is i mean they're still a lot more qualified than i am but you know it's a little you, yeah, terrifying when it's your animal your they're <laughs> they're working on and they've got their phone out googling you know i i appreciate yeah. the effort and you know but if you're going to school in an area that doesn't raise x y and z kind of animals what are you learning about them you know and that seems like that might be an issue as well with concentrating all the students towards one university it's that they're only going to learn what that university is teaching which i'm sure it's a great program like i feel bad like I'm going to start getting hate mail from Tuskegee now, but I'm sorry. I don't hate you. Well, I went, when, I, when, when I went to Alabama um, and I went to a lot of the neighboring farms, Tuskegee have a lot of relationships with those farms. And, and actually what they were doing was they were supporting the farmers by buying equipment and things like that in exchange for allowing the farmers to, to let students come and learn on those farms. And, and I went to some goat farms and I went to some cattle farms in Alabama and, and you know, it, it was fantastic. You know, the farmers felt that they were getting something out of it. You know, A, they were providing for the university, but B, you know, they were getting, you know, feeders and little barns built and things like that. And the university was also able to do a bit of research and allow the students to do research. And, and I saw a few different groups of animals that were being studied for different things by the students. Um, so I think that, Tuskegee, for example, is 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 being pretty proactive. Um, it, I, I don't know what the small animal and and and, and equine's like, but when the farm animal, you know, they were they were reaching out and trying to get those experiences ready for their students. Uh, when it comes to the farm animal side, and 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 you know, I was I was I was I was, I was impressed, and I learned a few things about you know how maybe we could do things better in this country. To be honest, it was a, it was it was a good program. So I know that you are. Do we, is it Newfield or Newfield? Is that how Nuffield. 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 Oh, I wasn't even close. So you <laughs> are a Nuffield scholar, and I honestly didn't know much about the program until a few years ago when a friend of mine was was part of a, a class. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the program and your individual project? And I'm hoping that you still got to do some traveling, even though you were kind of in those uh, pandemic years. Maybe that was it. Some of the travel you've done in the states was that linked to the program? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so the Nuffield Farming Scholarship, what happens is every year, um, it's it started in the UK, but actually it's now, there's a programme in Australia, there's a small programme started in America, um, Canada's got a programme, and then there's uh, South Africa, I think, and, and, and the Netherlands. So, but it started in the UK, and the UK's got the biggest cohort of scholars. So as long as you're under uh, 42, I think, and you're involved in agriculture in some way, um, you can apply to do a study and it's a, it's a traveling study. So what you do is you, 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 you come up with a title. So it could be uh, lameness in sheep, for example. You, do a you, you fill in an application form, you get uh, an interview, and then what they do, they find a sponsor who will sponsor you. And, the, and what the sponsor does, they'll give you money and enough they'll give you money. And what you need to do is you need to travel for about eight weeks, part of your study to learn about this topic. So you can bring back the knowledge to the country of where you're living and share that in industry. Um, so, you know, people do anything from arable to horticulture to livestock, education, all sorts of different things. Um, and, and it's been going on for, for a very long time. Uh, and then what you need to do is once you've finished your studies, you need to present it at the conference. And this year's conference is next, is next week, which I'm presenting at. As you present your study at the conference, um, and then you have to write a report, which they anyone can read, which is online at the Nuffield website, um, and produce a little video. And then after that, because you've studied that topic in so much detail, you get a lot of in interviews or a lot of organisations will come to you and ask you about how you can help and how you can use it. Some people use it for their own business. So again, if a, a dairy farmer has gone out and learnt about mastitis, they can come back and try and do a better job or improve or, or be old old standard mastitis treatment or whatever. So yeah, so that's really what the study is. So uh, I applied in 2021 and I was lucky to get a scholarship. So my my topic was um, encouraging and supporting people of black and people of colour in agriculture. Um, I originally changed made, made the title um, encouraging and supporting ethnic minorities in agriculture, veterinary and farming. But in the UK, um, ethnic minorities also include Eastern Europeans and also Scottish people in England, which is where I wanted to look at really about people of colour. So I changed my title throughout. Um, and I was sponsored by McDonald's UK and Ireland. So they're very keen. They were looking at internally their workforce, their farmers, and they were really keen about improving diversity. So hence why they sponsored me. And originally I wanted to go to Australia and look at working with the indigenous population, Aborigines, and you know, uh, you know the the, the the new Australians at the moment. Uh, I want to look at New Zealand for the Maoris and the the, the new uh, New Zealanders there, and then come to the US and learn about black farmers, indigenous farmers, Hispanic farmers, um, uh, and then COVID hit, <laughs> so we I couldn't do any travelling, um, and what. The thing for me is I really wanted to finish it. You normally got a year and a half to finish your studies, but they gave us an extended time because of COVID. Um, and when the borders started opening up, I, I thought to myself, well, I need to get out and I need to start. And the US was the only country that allowed British people to come in first. Australia and New Zealand will shut their borders completely. And actually, it was a good thing that I didn't wait because even now it's still not the easiest place to get to. So yeah, they what were, I, I look restricted for a long time. It's very restricted, exactly. Um, and also we get, we get a budget. And again, I wanted to make your yes, best use of budget and airfares are ridiculous. And so I thought, OK, let's look at the US. And the US for me, it's not one country. It's a lot of each state's like its own country within a big country. So I wanted to break it down. So I, I did a bit of research about the US. 
And um, what I found out was, you know, I, and I really wanted to go to the South. I've always wanted to go to the South. That was my dream. So how could I integrate something I wanted to do with, with my study? And what I learned was, you know, I, I learned a little about agriculture and I learned that, and, and so my first trip, I went to Alabama, Mississippi, um, um, Georgia, and um, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, uh, Louisiana. And that's because in the US, these states are the highest percentage of minority farmers. So they're, they've got a 6% minority farmers when the US average is 1% out of the, all the farmers. So I thought, okay, if I visit those states, well, I'll go and you know, visit universities, museums. Um, so what I did, I, I followed Martin Luther King's journey through those states. I followed, you know, saw where Rosa Parks was. I visited, I went through all the major cities in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, and Georgia. Uh, and I visited universities, Mississippi State University, and and also talked to farmers, uh, went to the vet school in Tuskegee. Um, so I tried to sort of just get, and, and also I'd looked at sort of things like sports. I, I went to some of the baseball and learned about, you know, the black baseball leagues and, and things like that. And the army, again, I wanted to um, learn about, you know, recruitment and things like that and, and also learn about slavery in the American history so I did that and I came home and I thought right should I um you know where do I go next and then I thought well actually I don't think I've finished in the U.S there's more there's more to learn and then I learned that Texas has got the highest number of minority farmers in the U.S and as a state Texas has got the highest number of farmers full stop in the whole of the U.S but high number of of, of black and, and minority farmers so I thought well let's go to Texas and let's go and learn and actually, there was a conference as well, the Southern Farmers Conference, which was actually a really proactive conference about talking about indigenous agriculture and things like that as well. So I landed in Austin and I traveled around the Texas. And again, I did the same sort of things. I, was, I, I tried to visit universities and talk to farmers. And I visited uh, this conference. Um, I talked to Marines, you know, my, um, Irish ethnic Marines who, were, who, were, who were, were part of a program and getting back into farming and how they were doing that. And yeah, it was fascinating. And um, so what I did, is I did all that. And also the same when I came back to UK, I did a little bit of a tour of the UK and just picked up what we're doing already in the UK. And then my job, my work was, well, how do we see what we're doing in the UK, see what they're doing in the US? What are our similarities? What are our differences? What are they doing better over in the US? And what can we learn from it? And, and, and that's what I'm presenting next week at the uh, Nuffield Farming Conference in Cardiff. And uh, again, we've, we've, they've created a, a school of sustainable agriculture um, with McDonald's are working on and McDonald's want to integrate my findings into that school. So again, we're trying to see if we can diversify and encourage more people to come and study agriculture. Yeah. So we will uh, be sure to be paying attention when you do your presentation because- Thank you. It'll be available on YouTube. So, yes, you know, yeah, once we'll, it's available, uh, go to the Nuffield website sure. and you can watch it. So the McDonald's program, is that UK based? The one like they sponsored you, but is that an, an international program that they're looking at or it's it's something that's originated in the UK? It's, it's, it's originated in the UK, yeah. So it's, it's, it's gonna be a UK thing. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, with, I've done a few different things with McDonald's. So again, um, I, I was talking to, so McDonald's came to me about three or four years ago and they, they know I was talking about diversity. And they said, Steve, what can we do about diversity and stuff? So I said, look, I'm doing this study think about maybe if you're interested in sponsoring me, go for it. And yes, they did. And I said, it'd be really good if we create a scholarship for some young people of colour. Uh, and what I do is I mentor them and I, and I look after them, but we take them through. And I'm a director of the Oxford Farming Conference. And if we attach them to the Oxford Farming Conference, but we create a little programme for them and make sure that we you know, do things with them, then maybe that might be a way going forward. 
Um, and yeah, this we, we sponsored two people a year to do the scholarship. And this year we've got five. So uh, next week I've got the, the, the scholars with me and I'm taking them on a field trip around some farms and we're going to look at different production systems. But again, it's about giving them the best experience and giving them those contacts and they can therefore just thrive in, in the sector and go forth. So McDonald's has sponsored that. Um, and again, we've got other things that we're going to talk about in the pipeline going forward to see how we can grow it. Mm -hmm. That's great because so much of, I mean, any industry, but it seems like ag in particular is about those connections, right? It's about, yeah, yeah. it's about both knowledge that you have yourself and the knowledge that you gain from, you know, in lots of cases, it's previous generations, but when you don't have those generations behind you necessarily, or maybe those generations grew up in other countries or in mm -hmm. other systems, even then yeah. to, yeah, to create those connections in the place where you live, because there's so much knowledge based in small regional areas, right? When it comes to, yeah. to agriculture, even if you've got skills from somewhere else, it doesn't always, it doesn't always translate easily. No, no, agree. So Thebe, how often do your kids use your work with McDonald's to leverage more Happy Meals? Because I know um, my kids would be all over that. They'd be like, well, <laughs> you know, McDonald's did give you money, daddy. Yeah, I know. I know, I know my I, kids I, would I, be I, all over that. <laughs> Whenever we go to McDonald's, they always say, this is paying for your trip, isn't it? And I'm like, well, in a roundabout way, it is, it is. But um, yeah, no, I think um, I think they're sick, sick of me talking about McDonald's because I, 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 you know, at first I was quite skeptical about McDonald's, but actually, because they've been so supportive, I, I am a fan now. Uh, but yeah, they, um, I think they like they like it, and I think it's given them sort of ideas going in the future. You know how to go about it, um, and and I like what and 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 because I think McDonald's in the world they're actually quite country specific. So even though they're part of a global company, actually McDonald's in the US and McDonald's in the UK and Ireland are quite different companies. So. They've got a little bit of freedom to, to, to do the things they want to do and, and then maybe teach others. But um, yeah, I also use McDonald's to hopefully leverage other companies to say, look, if you want to make a difference and do things look, this company's doing this and this is what they've done. So, you know, if like, for example, a big bank, you could easily do it. You know, you've got the money and the resources. You just have to actually commit to doing these things. Um, but yeah, I think. Um, yeah, McDonald's is uh, is definitely definitely been positive, and um, and also when I go to the head office, the middle floor is just a free McDonald's, and you can have anything you want. So that's always a bonus. Nice. <laughs> Not to just, just jump on the uh, McDonald's love fest, but I will say, even in Canada, like you said, they're they're a lot different. That the Canadian their advertising is not fear-based like a lot some of those some of the other fast food chains are where you know sometimes it's all about what they're not serving but mm -hmm. i will say canadian mcdonald's is very much talks about you know like this food isn't possible without canadian farmers and you know from yeah. a, from a fast food restaurant that that actually goes a long way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well we, we when we when we have mcdonald's as well the, the other project they sponsored for the nuffield was someone looking at regenerative agriculture with livestock so what they're doing is they're going around. They've gone to Australia now. They were in the US. They, they started off in New York and went across. And they were looking at how do American farmers or now Australian farmers are using livestock as part of a regenerative system. Um, so, again, you know, there's there's um, a lot of different type of projects. And again, uh, a lot of different types of sponsors as well that are sort of keen about helping out in that. You've worked in a lot of areas of vet medicine, including educational education, clinical practice, and in the industry. What are some of your favorite and least favorite parts of each of those ways of being a vet? 
Yeah, I I think the one thing people don't realise, especially when they are vets, is it's a passport. It's it's not just you're a clinical vet in a clinic or on a farm treating a cow. That and that's it. That's what you're taught at vet school, and that's when ninety nine percent of people come out, and that's all they think, and then they get frustrated. But actually, it's a passport because you do so many things, and that's what I did. You know, when I went into pharmaceuticals, I was working for a French company, which was brilliant because I get to go. I went to Europe a lot. I went to France a lot, and I get to meet lots of different European colleagues, and um, see lots of European farms. But also, I covered the UK and Ireland, so I got to see lots of vets all over the country, and I studied in Ireland for a bit. When I was in education, formal teaching is such a new thing. It's, it's so different from just going, look, I'm going to have a few people with me and just talk to them. And I was teaching at the Royal Agricultural University, so I was a livestock lecturer. So again, I had to learn about farming a lot more because a lot of my knowledge was very, very technical. Um, so I got to do that. And actually, when I was at the university, I uh, bought my own flock of sheep. So I started farming my own sheep. I also managed the university's flock. And I also managed the university's uh, calf rearing unit. So again, getting stuck in, um, monitoring them, having a farm hand with me. It was brilliant. You know, I was farming on the side. I was teaching and I was doing a little bit of research. And I actually got a, a chance to come to the US to learn about dairy farming. And I visited California and Wisconsin and, and, and saw that. So that was another really good experience. Um, I think the, the, the negative things with with my pharmaceutical job was driving a lot. I was on the road three or four days a week. I wasn't really seeing much family. In the education sector, there's not much money. <laughs> You've got to take a massive pay cut if you want to do that sort of thing. But, you know, actually, when you when you work with a student and the student starts off not unsure, quite unsure, not really keeping quiet to themselves, and, and by the end of the year, they're the ones who keep coming to you, wanting to do this, wanting to do that, speaking up and doing things. I think that's one of the greatest joys ever. And, and you know, when I was on those farms as well, I would I tried to make it as practical as possible. So if I was... Um, vaccinating sheep or if I was clipping sheep or if I was uh, doing a cesarean I'd always make a call out and you'd always have these bunch of students I think that that those that sort of seeing their faces and, and seeing them learning I think was such a joy um, and then I worked for an American Israeli nutrition company livestock nutrition company and again learning learning about American business was very very different you know the way Europeans do it the way the Americans do it is very different but yeah I loved it learning about that and 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 being on the cutting edge and looking at the technology um going to Israel a couple of times just to, to learn what they're doing um, but again as a vet I was working in the nutrition sector and I wouldn't say my knowledge was that great when I started but being around those people and talking to different people I think was was excellent and um now I've come back into clinical practice and I'm back on farm treating animals and uh and loving it because I think what I've done is because I've left the sector and gained so many skills and experiences I brought it back into clinical work and I feel like I can contribute more to my practice contribute more to the farmers again you know I've got different stories that they might not have heard from any other vets and and again that relationship with the farmers as well I can offer them things that I've probably seen in industry that other vets probably won't know about and I can go look have you heard about this have you doing doing that um so yeah I think so and I've got a much work, better work-life balance as well so now I can come home with my see my children and my wife and and work around that as well which I think I think as I've gone through my career originally my career was all about me being the best at my job to me being the best father and husband and it's a job you know and I think that's that's where I'm at at the moment so I'm gonna add a question in here um what you were saying about vet school admission and I mean, obviously it is very important for vets to be solidly based in science and to have a, a good understanding of these things. 
But, you know, thinking especially about our large animal vets, how much of what makes them really good at what they do is personality and character and not science as much. Um, what do you think the top traits are to make somebody? What what traits do you see in people who are more successful as vets um, rather than people who don't love it? Because loving it seems to be the biggest predictor of whether people stay or not and you know what the what yeah. their success looks like i think um first of all i think good communication i think the biggest issue is communication and when things go wrong it's because it was communicated badly and when things go well it's because it's communicated well and i think vets you know there are a lot of vets are academically brilliant you know top a students but they just haven't got those sort of personal skills and people skills and i think you were saying that earlier that's that's really important you know how well you get on and and, it, and especially with a farmer it's not a a one-off relationship it's a long-term relationship and you don't just know the animal the farmer's cows you know the farmer's life you know the farmer's likes and dislikes you get to know them on a bigger scale you know you go to the family and some you sit down with them sometimes for a bit tea and whatever so i think it's having that having that communication and feeling like you you give you you involve yourself you know you can't just be like I do that and I walk away and we have that relationship because then someone else comes in that can suddenly change you want to keep you know end of the day veterinary practice is a business farming is a business and we need those relationships and I think that's really really key so understanding the farmers understanding their business understanding who they are I think is, is lost sometimes but I think that's important and I see some of the best farm vets actually I've just done that. They haven't got any more letters after their name, uh, but they just go out and they talk to the farmer about other things first. They can treat the cow. And even if they don't know, they like the, 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 if the farmer and the vet get on well, the vet can go, look, I don't know what, what to do right now, but I'll go and find out for you and I'll come back. And the farmers appreciate that because that means the vet's going to try for them. Whereas somebody very academic might then try and trip up on themselves and just, you know, try to do something that might go wrong. And then they don't know how to say, you know, what went wrong. And then it all goes, when I've seen mistakes, that's what's happened. Um, so I think communication is a massive thing in, in vet me. And I think we're doing more and more about that. And I think the other thing is a successful vet, I think are vets who, who manage the work life sort of thing. So I think some vets think that work is their life um, and other things. And, and I think sometimes then you, you get too involved, they get too bogged down and then they, they they lose sight on where they want to be and what they need to do. And I think if they if they have that a healthy relationship, then it's more sustainable. Um, whereas if they go from one extreme to another, it, it, it's um, really, really difficult. Um, so, you know, I'd say for me, the best vets I've seen are people who have a life outside of veterinary, who actually do other things, and actually people who like to talk, who are pretty chilled out and 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 listen and and, and engage and then think about what they're going to do rather than just gun ho, this is what we're going to do, and then we walk away. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, especially I think when you're dealing with animals, right, you really do have to listen to the person who is telling you there's something wrong and ask the right questions to figure because you can't just walk in and it's not a human patient right where you can ask them <laughs> so you're, you're that that communication with the the owner the farmer really is is essential for figuring out right from the beginning what what the problem is exactly for example the other day i went to go and see a sick goat um a goat was down and i had a student with me a young student and 
we went to this goat and it, it hadn't been getting up for about a week, I think. And the, the farmer was looking at it. And I said to I said to her, look, you know, this goat the most, you know, what do you think? You know, what do you think about this? And she said, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's going to do well. And I said, look, you know, your animals better than me. Um, look, there's some options here. We can I can look at it. We can treat it. In my opinion, I think the prognosis is poor. When a goat goes down, it doesn't get up. You are telling me similar sort of things. You know, would you, you know, should we, do you think we should put this thing to sleep, you know, because that's probably best for it. And she said, look, yeah, I know this goat. I've had it since a kid. I would prefer that. I said, I think that's best for it as well. And so we communicated it. I went straight away and I didn't do anything else. I just put the goat to sleep. And then the student came to me afterwards and said, well, why didn't you do an examination? And why didn't you take some bloods? And why? I said, look, you know, we could do all that spend all that money and give a false hope to that farmer when I know in my experience that that's not going to work and she knows in her experience it's not going to work and we've communicated that together now if she said to me no I, I don't care how much it costs to spend you know I want you to solve it I'll, I would have done differently but I could see it in her face that she was already ready to let it go and I said and I said that, those are the sort of things that comes with experience but, you know I can't you can't be taught that really but again when you talk to the client you start to get those vibes that you think okay do you know what I think this is probably the best thing uh, and so I think the student found that difficult because in vet school you talk like animal down you do this you do this you do this and I was like no 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 you need to talk to them and find out you know what are their expectations with this case as well rather than you just you know thinking that you can save everything because you can't yeah that's One, right and the, the money factor is you know it's important yeah. too right I mean it's farms like you said farms are businesses and if you go in and run all the tests every time, then you're not going to be their favorite vet either. <laughs> all of a sudden, their vet bill has gone through. It's true. It's true. But all young vets do it, and then you learn over time. <laughs> sure. I think that speaks so much, too, to the importance of trust between the vet and the their human clients, because I know for us that the level of communication between our, you know, our vet is part of a practice, but our normal vet and our family has been such that we have a lot more faith in her judgment because she shows faith in our judgment and our knowledge of our animals and our business and vice versa. And I know we were in a similar situation with the dog a few years ago as to your goat that I brought him in. He was obviously not right. And she said, you know, you can drop $5,000. I can about guarantee it's nothing that can be fixed. It's going to be a really traumatic experience and you'll be out $5,000 and still have a sick dog, you know? And what we chose to do is to just wait until he declined enough that it was time to put him down. And as an owner, that made me feel so much more trust in her understanding of our family and of our business that it wasn't a a lack of caring about our dog, but simply that $5,000 and that much chaos was not going to be best for anybody. And it wasn't going to change the outcome, you know, and that's, I think that really cemented our relationship. And I mean, yeah, she comes over for supper. She's part of the family at this point, you know, and that's, that's what we need yeah. because it does really improve the relationship that we have. So I was reading a blog post of yours um, about equity and inclusion, and I'm using your words here where um, you talked about equity, meaning creating a level playing field and inclusion, making people feel like they really belong. So what kind of a difference does it make for you in your work um, professionally and personally when it feels like you belong? Well, yeah, when I feel like I can be me, 
I feel like I can bring my whole time to work. Um, I feel like I want to go to work and I feel supported. I think those, those are the things that I think before I started, when I, when I was young and I was, I didn't have those things. And I think if you're hiding something about yourself and you feel like you can't say it, um, then it's, it's difficult, you know, feeling like you belong at a place and that you want to stay at a place because everybody just wants to be themselves, I think. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and in, in agriculture, um, in general in the UK, as in veterinary, we have a huge dropout rate, people leaving the sector because and a host of reasons. It could be financial, it could be other things. But again, you know, what they've proven is money doesn't really matter when people are happy and where they are. Like you can throw as much money as you want at somebody, but if someone is is internally not, there's something missing, something not right, they will eventually leave. They they won't perform as they should do and they will eventually leave. And so what I, you know, and, and that was a big thing, you know, even coming back into clinical practice, I wasn't going to come back into clinical practice. And when I, and actually I had asked the person who now employs me, I, she knew the person who was going to employ me my job I was going to go for. I asked her for her opinion what he's like. She said to me, you know, he's good and stuff, but why do you come to work for us? And I said, oh, I don't want to go back into clinical practice. She said, look, people are really important to me. For me, I want everyone to come here and be themselves. And I want to support everybody. And, you know, if they've got interests, I want to support that. If they've got likes and dislikes, then I want to know that. And I don't want anyone to feel like they, they don't belong. And she talked for ages about people and about how important it was to have a team. You know, this is a team and we all work together in this. And this, the success is only because of all of us, not because of one of us and things like that. And for me, this was like, I'm, you know, I was like, this is what I've been wanting. And I thought people didn't, it never existed, but it exists here. And, and only at the end did she go, oh, yeah, and by the way, this is what our clients are. This is what the type of work we do, this pay. But actually, she'd sold me already in the first 50 minutes. And, and I think, so, so, so we've, we've got a practice, you know, young, old, male, female. We've got ethnic minorities, which is a rarity in, in, this, in this sector. We've got um, LGBTQ+. We've got all sorts of people in our, in our practice. And we all get along. We all share who we are. OK, um, but it's, we feel like it's a safe space. Um, and, and also, if we've got issues with things or things that happen, we feel like we can share it. But actually, it means that our team is quite long, long lasting. You know, most people have been there for a long time. We, we don't have a problem recruiting because people want to join this team because they hear about it. Other companies want to know about it and what the secret is. So, you know, we, we project, you know, things that we do. You know, we have a, a wellness board. We have a positivity board. We share. We celebrate different people's celebrations. If people are celebrating whatever culture or religion they're from, we all celebrate in the practice to make sure people feel like that. Um, we, we, we do those sort of things. We try and associate with other organizations that maybe are different, but actually we can we can learn from. Um, and I think that, and, and, and also students, when they come and see our practice, they get that really positive experience of a farm animal practice. And then when they're with us on farm, they feel like, well, they've got someone like us on farm so they can therefore experience working with livestock or near tractors and things like knowing that they've got these people that are part of a team that's quite inclusive. And so everything's positive, positive, positive. So therefore, if they then decide, well, OK, what career do I want to go into? All they've got is good memories and good thoughts. So for me, I think 
inclusivity is really key. Um, equity is all about, well, not everyone starts off with equal fitting, you know, like we talked about connection. Some people have connections, some people don't. Some people have that financial um, clout, some people don't. But how do we level the pain to those people who don't have those connections? How do we get them those connections? Or those people that that financial difficulty, how do we create systems to bring them towards that? Those people with a lack of experience in farm animals, can we find a way of getting them that experience, getting them some nice farms where they're going to be safe, but they're going to get that experience. So, and then once we bring them to a level playing field where they're equal with everybody else, then giving them that really positive experience, part of inclusivity. And I think if we do that, we build in that 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 stay rather than go psyche in people's minds and, and where they are. Yeah, those, those two pieces really are key, right? Because you can, you know, create scholarships and programs and, and recruit people, but if when they're done that program or they enter the workforce, if they don't feel that this is the place for them, you're right. They don't stick around. They don't stay. No. They'll, they'll find somewhere else to be. So, yeah, both pieces are, are so critical for, for it being successful. And, I mean, if, the you know, some people are always looking at the, the economics, right? But, I mean, even just in terms of, you know, retention and, you know, yeah. those, those things, they... It kind of pays for the other stuff. Not that that's <laughs> that's not a priority for for some of us, but I mean to even to to defend those types of programs, then that speaks for itself, right? If you can recruit people and keep them in the industry that you you wanted them to join in the first place, then yes. then all of those things are important. Hundred percent. With diversity and inclusion comes diversity in thought, diversity in experience, diversity in skills, and and if you look at the best, biggest companies in the world, Amazon, IBM, Nike, Coca-Cola, why are they so powerful and so innovative? It's because of the way they bring people in and make sure people, because when people are included, then they can therefore express themselves and express their ideas and have different ways of thinking. And especially as a business, that's so important when you want to compete in this marketplace that we have. And especially when things go wrong, or like, you know, the, the, the economic crash or what we're going COVID or whatever. You want people who can think outside the box to try and get us through these difficult situations. Well, it, it seems to me that if a person coming into your team doesn't want to learn about new people, doesn't want to learn about different cultures or backgrounds or whatever, doesn't want to try new things, they're not the one you want on your team anyway, and they're not going to be happy there. Because, you know, I certainly don't want the vet coming out who's refusing to learn new stuff or try mm. different things or whatever, because that's not someone who's looking to grow and improve and, and be better. And that's just ugh, boring. It sounds boring yeah. to me. Um, so as someone who does live in a unusually diverse area, what can farmers be doing to encourage non-farm people to be interested in agriculture. I guess Arlene has this further down in his script, but the, the town where my kids go to school is the home of a large packing plant. So I think 60 to 70% of the people in town are not white and not from this area, you know, came from all sorts of interesting places and backgrounds. But how do we encourage their kids to be involved in agriculture because they're growing up, you know, in town away from this background? And it seems like a, a great resource that is not being 
maybe invited into our community the best. No. So, so the interesting, another similarity between both of our, our countries is, is children and, and the makeup of children. So in the UK, uh, so as a population, 14% of people are people of colour in the UK, but children, 33% of primary age, so children under 11 are children of colour and 25% are under 18. So in the US, again, I, I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but I know it's something very similar where children of colour is huge and it's the fastest growing part of, you know, of, of, of that demographic. Um, so what you'll find is in a generation and two generations, these people are going to be in the, in the marketplace looking for jobs, looking for careers. And so we need to really think about it now. One study that I have seen is children make their ideas up at about six or seven years old. So really, if you want to inspire them, encourage them, give them, put the seed in their head, you have to do it before seven years old, because once you go past seven, you've missed the boat. Um, and, and that's for anywhere in the world, really. It's, 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 it was, it's, it's, there's a few studies about it. So I think the first thing is, you know, I, I think the, the, the big, the big um, barrier is the root. The location of where farmers are and the location where all these kids are that you've, you've mentioned that earlier so what do we do and i think the greatest thing is social media first thing you can do is social media use it and i think learn about it and 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 the great if covid was negative for most things the, the best thing it was it was how it, how social media grew and what i find is try and join groups online try and get involved in discussions online and as somebody who's not who doesn't know anything listen so, you know, getting involved in a, you know, it, 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 whether it's a, um, a minority ethnic group, an LGBTQ plus group, a disability group, whatever group people get involved in. If you're not part of that group or you don't know much about that group, just listen, understand the different nuances. You can ask questions of where do I find out more, use, use websites and learn more. The other thing is getting in front of those children and, and engaging with them, but engaging with those children in their environment rather than getting them to come to your environment. Because again, they, if they see you in their environment first, they're going to feel like they're going to find that relationship and understanding a bit more because it's their, they're already in their safe place. So then when they come out to your farm, the farm is already a scary place. But if they already know that they've seen you in, a, in, a, in an environment that they're already familiar with, you break a lot of barriers that way. And then they can therefore put, well, OK, you're a safe person and this is a farm. This must be a safe place as well. And, and it's about it's about making those links. You know what I mean? Because if you take children straight onto a farm, it, it might make them excited. But how is it going to inspire them to have a career? And that's what we need to do. So it's about doing those different bits and pieces. Again, also, when you're on farm, if you have someone else who maybe reflects those children in some way, come from the same area as them, looks a bit like them, um, maybe someone similar age to them, maybe another child, they're your own children. Again, something that the children can connect with. And then if it's on a farm setting, they, they, they can build all those things together. Because again, like if you just have a, a, a you know an old white male farmer in front of a lot of girls of color, where is the connection? There's none. Whereas if you, you know, you have, even have a young, even a young white girl, at least there's a girl to girl relationship. You know what I mean? Or if that farmer has has a friend who who's a person of colour who can connect to those children and, and is on the farm at the same time, even though maybe something slightly different. Again, the children can put that, all that together. So those are the good. And then it's about building it up. So something that we do in the UK, for example, is FaceTime a farmer. 
So every month, farmer just does a FaceTime and walks around and goes, all right, today I'm uh, milling the, the, the wheat or I'm cleaning the tractor or we're going to we're going to sow the maize or we're going to milk the cows. And, 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 and having that re regular relationship helps build it up so that the children don't forget, you know what I mean? And also getting the teachers to integrate that into their curriculum. Um, so, yeah, it's not a, it's not, a, there's probably, a, I could talk for another few hours if we wanted about how to do it, but those are the things. It's about making sure that the children find, you can't be what you can't see. And again, it's about how do the children connect to that career and that lifestyle? And if you can find as many things to make those children feel like that, then that's the best thing. So as a farmer or someone in the rural community, educate yourself and try and learn and try and involve yourself in as many groups as possible because um, that's the best way to, to start to break down those barriers. Yeah, I'm guessing your answer to a question that I had is going to be similar, but kind of in the reverse. The one thing I was thinking about is as someone who came home to a community, came home to a farm where there isn't much diversity, how do we make sure that our kids are comfortable and know about diverse people and populations when the, what they see on a day-to-day -day basis is pretty undiverse. Like them. <laughs> yeah. 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 Looks, looks a lot like them. Yeah. I think so, so with children, what storybooks are they reading? You know, look at the authors, look at the types of stories, look at where the stories are from, diversify their reading lists um, try to get them to talk about it a lot more. Um, even in, even sort of, it, learning with them so if you're trying to learn let's say about ramadan for example sit with them and and you can say well today i learned about this and talk to them about it and get that engagement going online forums again you know there are online groups where children can talk to each other and, and try and get them involved with that i think um so yeah use social media but i think it's things like reading lists and integrating into what they're learning you know if they're learning about history what you find out about something and tell them about it did you know um, you know, indigenous Americans used to do, used to farm on this bit of land or, you know, if they're learning about livestock, you talk about indigenous farming with bison and, and the ways that maybe there's similarities. I don't know. It's about that conversation. So at home, you have those conversations um, so that it's not different or, or weird. And then, you know, if you have a machine to go to town, go to town and and and, 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 and eat in different types of food and, and meet different people. But yeah, use social media if you can. Yeah. I'm thinking too, you know, even acknowledging the times when we're doing something and saying, you know, like say around the holidays to be like, I know that most of the people that are at your school, you know, are celebrating the same holiday as us, but, you know, here are some of the other things that other families are celebrating, yeah, you know, 100%. yeah, yeah, to, to just be aware of the fact that just because it's quote unquote normal for us doesn't mean that this is the only way, right? No, no. Like they're a citizen of the world rather than just a citizen of a small area. And it's about giving them that 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 that, that those that that bit of knowledge or that little bit of understanding that, you know, they're part of a huge community and they can, you know, when they when they grow up, they can they can when they experience it, these are the sort of things that they can go and learn about and see and enjoy, I suppose. I think for me, that's been one of the most exciting parts of having the podcast is how many people we get to connect with that we wouldn't see just in our small towns, because I hear so much about, you know, farmers hate people of color, farmers hate gay people, farmers hate this. And I'm like, well, we don't know any of these people. We don't see these people or, you know, we don't know that we're seeing these people. And so how can we 
positively engage with people that we know nothing about. And so I feel like the more we can connect people with people they don't know about, the more interested they can be and the more engaged they can be. And, you know, um, so basically what I'm hearing you say is that brainwashing children is the future. And I'm good with that. Yeah. So <laughs> we all do it, don't we, a little bit? <laughs> my kid's school isn't going to know what hit them. Um, no, I mean, we're incredibly lucky to have this diversity in our town. And Brilliant. it makes me sad that it isn't seen as more of a, a real benefit um, because I think it's really exciting. And, you know, if we're having all these people wanting to come in, we should make them be farmers because the the number of farmers and the age demographic in our area is not great. Be. Yes. They want no, no. Not, not forced farmers. Forced yeah. farming no, no. for everyone. <laughs> More chickens for everyone. There we go. All but right, Arlene, I sorry, I just, just want to go back to one point earlier. Sure. My, my children's school is very undiverse. So what I did is I bought them a whole load of books for the library and donated it. And I was hoping that, you know, once things like that, you can do also to help with the, the local school, for example. So there's some really good diverse reading lists that you can find online um, that really, really help as well. Yeah, that's a good point. I know our school, they recently, the public library and the school library used to be joined together. And for both security reasons and other community stuff, they're, they're now separate. So they are looking at, at building up the school library again. So that's a good point maybe for, for uh, since I celebrate Christmas and I know our teachers do, I can give <laughs> give the library some some new books about different holidays. Arlene, I know as well that in our, our small town public library, the director is a, a friend who mentioned that often the, the library's budget is very small. And if the board is also very uh, non-diverse, the likelihood of them buying more diverse books can be less. And so she said, you know, though, if they're donated, and especially if you put a in memory of or in honor of plaque in their front, you can put basically anything on the shelves. So oh, yes, yeah, I also yeah. have a, a very diverse list of books coming uh, for our local library because- Excellent. Yeah, you know, the kids should see people who look like them and they should see people who don't look like them. So- yeah. Yeah, more books for everybody. That's it. That's it. <laughs> um, so as a parent, do you hope your kids are involved in agriculture? And are they interested in any way now besides in ignoring their tortoise? <laughs> I want to see the tortoise. I, you know, I'm just here for yeah. the animals. <laughs> just here for the animals. Um, so my my son's not in not interested. He wants to be a, a racing car driver, Formula One driver. And um, he's, he's, he's got, he's, there's, um, I don't know if you know in America, Lewis Hamilton. So he's a, a fame, he's one of the greatest ever well, um, Formula One drivers and my son's besotted. So I think he's a bit of a lost cause at the moment. But my daughter, she, she likes to follow me and she's getting more and more interested. So um, I've been on call a couple of times where I've just had to look after, I've just had her and I've taken her out when I've been doing some emergencies and she was there to watch a cow cesarean recently and, She's seen me treat some alpacas and all sorts. And she she keeps telling me that every time I'm on call, she wants to come out with me. So I think she's slowly getting that bug at the moment. And um, who knows? They've been surrounded by animals since they were little. You know, when I was calf rearing and things like that, they used to come out and muck out the, the calves and, and, and 
and chase the sheep and and ride on the back of um of pick of, of my pickup and things like that. So they've had that experience. Um, so they're not saying too much at the moment, but I can see my my middle daughter is is as is asking more questions. Um, the good thing is actually they're they're very um interested in where their food comes from. So you know if there's any positive, they they they're very keen on you know when we talk about meat and things like that, they want to know where it's come from, how it's raised the differences between two types of you know lamb from two different places and so uh, yeah i think it's, it's it's a lot it's going to be a long long run but um yeah they 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 do like animals and my son loves animals but i don't know his career's there but my daughter might do so we'll see so as a parenting podcast we often ask our guests um what they're really enjoying about parenting kind of in the the current moment so what is your favorite thing about the ages that your kids are right now um i love my my son's age because we we we're talking more like friends rather than you know we've got a lot in common now so when he talks about motor racing and I talk about, I can talk with him because I love it as well. So we have that, we, we have long discussions about it and we can sit in front and watch the races together. And, you know, I feel like it's like, you know, when I had a son, that's what I felt like I could bond with him. So I'm really enjoying that um, and, 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 and feeling like, you know, me and him, I sort of got common, common, common ground. I'm trying to convince him to support the same football team as me, but he, he refuses to. Um, and I think that's a whole other story there. But um, so one day I'll crack him on that because that's more important to me. But at the moment, I'm happy with, with motor racing. I don't know. <laughs> you said they, you know, kids make a decision pretty early. I think he's already <laughs> switching, switching football clubs. It's probably not going to happen. Oh, I know, I know. You'll be um, lifelong rivals. But I think, well, I think that, that's going to be my, uh, yeah, thorn in my side. Uh, my daughter, I, I, I think because she, she's got that interest in the, in being with me and coming out with me um but also having a daughter i i've never really grown up with grown up with girls i, I was with brothers all my cousins were boys uh, i was quite remote so it was just me and my brothers when i was in scotland so we you know i didn't really grow up with girls and actually growing her growing up learning seeing the world through her eyes and understanding some of the things that i probably never saw that were in plain sight but actually seeing it through trying to look through the world for her I'm thinking, oh no that's not right and that's not right and why are they doing that and actually whoa that's so for me that's a massive learning curve but I think it's it's making me feel like I can do more maybe going forward um so I'm really enjoying that and also she's starting to take up um which is a type of Indian dance so my my uh my aunt was a famous dancer and now my daughter doing that I, I feel like that, that family traditions coming back which is which is really really great to see um and my youngest three-year-old uh she's she's a a, a mummy's girl so she won't come near me much and she just she fights with me and shouts at me and tells me off so i'm not enjoying that at the moment <laughs> she's not in nappies so maybe that's a bit positive <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you just have to pick uh yeah. Barlow, right? i'm sure she'll that's come it. around She'll come around one day. I'll have to, I'll have to um, give her more sweets and, and, and tempt her that way somehow. So knowing that parenting isn't always easy or often easy, are you willing to share anything that you're struggling with as a parent? Um, yeah, I think I'm struggling. Like sometimes it's hard to know, are they, are they getting education-wise everything they need? You know, is school enough? Should I be doing more with them at home? Should I be spending time? 
going through exercise books, you know, getting them to read more, telling them to do their homework more? Or should I actually be like, look, this is a childhood. They're going to school. They're tired when they come home. Should, you know, maybe they need rest because, again, you know, they've got plenty of years ahead of them to, to learn. So sometimes I wonder, should I be more proactive in, in teaching them, making them study, learning? And, and I wonder, do other parents push their children or do other parents leave it alone? And if I don't do it now and they don't succeed in the future, was it my fault? I don't know. So, I, and then sometimes I think, and sometimes I think also, should I be sending them to lots of different classes? But then I think, well, am I just going to basically be, are they just going to be doing lots of things and never having time just to be themselves at home and, and, and play in the garden? So, and, and, and you sometimes see some of these parents and they're doing all these different things. And you just think to yourself, should I be more like them? Um, or actually just being chilled out and having uh, quite a relaxed chat because again you know they, they they will learn when they want to and uh, I don't know I don't know the answer I'm sort of um, not sure yeah so, sounds pretty sounds, sounds pretty similar too for our <laughs> listeners Arlene and I look like a pair of little bobbing head dolls down here at this point <laughs> I guess my there feeling right I was just going to say there wasn't much I enjoyed about the pandemic, but the fact that all the kids activities were cancelled meant that that piece of, you know, should they be doing more, should they be involved in more things, you know, like, are we doing soccer this year, are we, you know, like, all those decisions got taken out and it was like, I guess family time is it. (laughs) And, you know, there was there was some freedom in the the lack of of options, I suppose. I guess my feeling, you know, my kids are four and six in just a few weeks, which is terrifying. Um, I try to strongly encourage things that they seem really interested in, and I don't worry about the rest. I mean, I figure, you know, they're still little. They're going to learn to read and whatever eventually. Um, But yeah, same thing, you know, how I don't want them to miss out on things, but I also don't want to be a crazy overscheduled helicopter parent who's never home and you know, his yeah. kids are always exhausted and it is, it's definitely a, um, a balance of, you know, I've been wondering about it already this morning, you know, how hard to push the kids. And yeah, we put my daughter in Clover Kids, which is like baby 4-H and she loves that so far, but that's the only activity they're in and everybody seems fine with that. So, you know, yeah. let them hang out. They're having fun at home. No, no, I was going to say that um, when I when I, I love sport and I've always thought I'd love my children to be a professional sports person so that, you know, I can retire early and follow them around the world, just being their manager. And um, so I put my son into rugby, cricket, football, everything. And he hates sport in general. So I've learned that yeah, don't don't push them too much because, you know, we might want something, but they don't. They'll tell us. Now you just need to buy him a really fast car. He's already asked me, and I'm like, I can't, I don't afford enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's even scarier than rugby. Yeah. (laughs) Arlene, since you have a kid who does drive and plays rugby, is the driving scarier than rugby? Uh, In the moment, no. Watching her slam into other people is scary. But, um, But overall, I mean, I guess logically i know that that driving a car is probably riskier but yeah 
just in different, yeah, scary in different ways. There's so many things to be afraid of as a parent. Just add that to the list. But we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at a county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up to ensure that you win. Um, I would want to dominate brewing my own beer. It's something I've got into. Um, I'm starting to get more and more technical about it. Before it was a bit of fun, but now I'm like studying hops. I'm studying different mashes and I've studied different temperatures. And yeah, that's that's what I'd love to be to dominate in a, in a country fair and, and have a have a winning winning brew. All right. Well, Katie and I uh, will um, nominate ourselves to be your judges or testers. Oh, or... You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess we'll move into our cussing and discussing segment. We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe where listeners can leave their cussing and discussing entries for us and we'll play them on the show. So go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language and you can leave us a voice memo or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com and we will read them out for you. Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? Bit of a social media hot take today, Arlene. I am ready. R- really frustrated by people who talk a big game about their independent nature and nobody can tell me what to do, you know, and then if you confront them in any way, shape or form or question any of what they're saying, they say, well, that's not what I meant. Well, I don't really think all of that. Well, then why are you saying it? Because if you're intimidated enough by me to back down on your strongly held belief, it's not that strongly held. And I just, I just find it frustrating. So basically, if you're going to say something obnoxious publicly, be prepared to double down on it or be prepared for me to think yeah. that you're kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Be prepared to defend it or yeah. don't say it in the first place. Or don't place. say it. Yeah. Exactly. Don't, yeah. I don't, you don't have to. I guess it's not really that much of a hot take. I, you know, if you're going to say something ridiculous, be prepared to defend it. That's it. Yeah. All right. And provide some resources and references, please. Yeah. Uh, Thebe, what would you like to cuss and discuss? Cuss and discuss. Um, so, so, so I don't know much this about this. Just, this can just be anything from the tortoise chewing on your couch to, um, so yeah, something interesting that happened to, to you this week or something that's driving you crazy, whatever you want it to be. This is just a free for all at the end of the episode. Okay. Um, so I like to to discuss it's when um you're given you're given some jobs for the day so today i was given three jobs to do and then they try to throw in more jobs to make me do more in the same time and i don't earn any more money and like without discussing with me people just slip things in and send me on places and um i like to know this is what i'm doing today stick at that what I hate is when people go, well, do you mind just doing that as well and doing that as well? Um, when And when I say, no, I need to do something else, they don't think about that. They just think about themselves. So that, that's my, um, my, my, my gripe for today, unfortunately. That's fair, yeah. Especially as a vet, I'm sure there are enough unpredictable things in your day that you'd rather yeah. not get more thrown at you from. At first, I You're, wasn't sure if it was your, your spouse or your workplace that was giving you extra jobs. But I was I wondering. Well, I think anybody... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Arlene, okay. what do you have to custom discuss? I'm up. So yesterday I was lucky enough to be able to volunteer on a field trip. And I will say lucky because I did 
ask to go on said field trip. And I mean, I always appreciate teachers and how hard they work, but especially after going on a field trip, I just want to say again that teachers are fantastic people, especially middle school teachers, because I was on the, in the grade, my third child is in grade seven. So they're in that 11, 12 range and in a pack in particular, that, um, that age of, of children are particularly challenging. So we'll just say cheers to teachers and thank you for all that you do because one day is, is good for me. Arlene, from the message you sent, it looked like you were at a hockey game We were with all of those children? Yes. Yeah. So it was a midday hockey game that was put on in our city for just school children. So it was, there were yellow school buses, as far as the eye could see, around this giant hockey stadium. And someone said there were 19,000 school children in this arena. And I will say, I think as many were watching the hockey game as there were in line trying to get food, because <laughs> there were a lot of a lot of kids who did not care about hockey, but really wanted to spend some money on food. So I'm not sure how much any of them even saw because the lines were so long, <laughs> but it was I mean, an adventure. I even really love hockey as much as any non-Canadian can, I think. And that sounds like the worst use of a day. That I could like, I mean, I'm sure there's worse things, but oh, that's right up there. There's, yeah. oof. <laughs> it was, it was interesting because like normally you go to a hockey game and they, you know, they'll be like, make some noise or dance or whatever. And, you know, a certain number of people in the audience will do those things. But when you have a whole stadium full of kids, uh, things got real loud. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure that they had fun and I had some Tylenol on the way home on the bus. So thank you, Thebe, so much for joining us today. If listeners want to find out more about the society, want to connect with you online, hear uh, your presentation when it is available, where should they find you? Um, so I'm on Twitter at Navratnam Part One. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Scottish Tamil. Um, you can email, you can look at the website at www.bveds.com for the BVEDS website, um, or you can email me at vetsfarm, V-E-T-S-F-A-R-M-U-K at gmail.com. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you and to talk to you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, pleasure. and especially for taking the time the week before your presentation. Now I feel a little bad. <laughs> oh, it's been I'm fun. Sure thank you very ready. much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be more of this, basically. Well, good. Then hopefully we were a reasonable warm up for doing more of it. <laughs> slightly less academic i'm guessing yeah probably yeah thank you thank you thank you for joining us today on barnyard language if you enjoy the show we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyard language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making the show please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you'd like to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We're always in search of future guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.